0: Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to wrap up chapter 8, and which will cover 1 Corinthians 8, 10 through 13. The topic in this chapter has been knowledge and the fact that some claim to have special knowledge that others did not, and were tempting the weaker to go places they shouldn't in order to prove they have the knowledge that these elitists have we're going to wrap this up and paul's going to deal with this we have plenty to cover let's begin with prayer thank you lord for your goodness your kindness your mercy your grace and your precious promises thank you lord that we can open the word together as we encourage one another and show love to one another and lord we want to acknowledge that each person who knows you is our brother and sister in Christ, and it's important to you and should be to us as well. Thank you for what we can learn from these verses in Jesus' name. Amen. have quite a bit, so we'll get right to verse 10 here. So there's an ironic statement here that shows up in the Greek that isn't uh, readily apparent in some of the English translations. So let me read it. I'm using the Lexham English Bible. It says here, For if someone should see you who has knowledge reclining for a meal in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, because it is weak, be strengthened so that he eats the food sacrificed to idols? Question mark. Now there's a couple terms in here that are key to understanding the irony that don't show up in english translations very well and i'll fill this in as as we explain the verse so the point is this that the knowledge gnosis that the elitist the strong have can possibly lead others to idolatry and we'll see later actual destruction as I've mentioned before in Corinth there were many polytheistic deities worshipped there were temples to various deities a lot of the food that was available whether in the marketplace or at a corporate meal was somehow linked to the idol temples and that issue here was going actually to the pagan temple and eating food with whoever's there in their ceremony and some claimed that they were so strong in their knowledge that this wouldn't harm them because they knew an idol is nothing there's only one God but one so this food is not going to do anything other than just be food So that was the issue so the term knowledge by the way in the Greek is used five times in chapter 8 so we're concluding chapter 8 five times gnosis as a noun shows up in this chapter and just for reference the first one in 1 Corinthians 8 1 now concerning food offered to idols we know that we all have knowledge but then paul says knowledge puffs up love builds up so we all have knowledge that could have been their slogan probably was and then in verse seven but this knowledge is not in everyone some being accustomed to the idol and so forth so it shows up in verse seven chapter eight verse ten the one we're looking at here and then the next verse eleven for the one who is weak, the brother for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Now, one thing, as we look for this word knowledge in 1 Corinthians, I notice that it comes up at the very beginning. And Paul makes a statement that's important here, and that's in 1 Corinthians 1, 1.5, where he says, that in everything you were made rich in him in all speech and knowledge so the things that some were claiming they were important speech or rhetoric or knowledge and they looked at paul and saw him deficient particularly in the speech part paul said that they all had in christ and what we're going to see today is the importance of the body of christ the corporate solidarity of the body biblical definition of the church as the body of christ and that those who are part of this body attached to christ the head have to if they're to be legitimate in their faith have love and care for one another to build them up under christ not under sin and that brings us to the next word strengthened is the best i could find in the leb but strengthened literally i have it on the slide here from the Greek, akodamio, uh, oikos' house, but to be built up, to be built up. Now, normally, in <clears throat> the context of the gospel, in the church, to be built up is good. God wants us to be built on the rock, to be built up in Christ. The irony is, you're taking your weaker brother or sister and building that person up To be able to go to the idol temple. So they can have the kind of knowledge you have. And they can have the status you have. And this is a very bad building up. And uh, this ironic building up, we'll see in the next verse, is a building up that can destroy as we go on. Building up to destruction is a horrible thing to think about. And they were doing this yet proud of it, and claiming it proved their superior spirituality. It's amazing to see in church history what practices have been adopted and that those adopting some of the various practices use them to claim superior status and spirituality. People adopt Eastern religion, Eastern meditative techniques. They come from the temple of the pagans and that's their they publish a book proving they have something other Christians need it's an analogy I'm coming, trying to come up with it would help us understand how serious the problem is here in Corinth dear ones whatever the pagans have in their worship is not going to benefit the church we have what we need, and that's what Paul started First Corinthians 1 with. We have what he's given us. Now, if here, just do a little technical uh, analysis, if someone should see you. Now, that would be uh, what in Greek would be a third-class conditional, which means it's subjunctive. It may or may not happen. But in this case, it likely will happen. Why? Because we already know that the weak are there in the church they are brothers and sisters in Christ and they are tempted to try to have acceptance in the congregation because the strong with their knowledge seem to have something they don't so given the situation this third-class conditional is very likely to come to pass it's not just theoretical it's likely to happen so there's the technical part of this. I have a statement I, I put in my notes. Maybe I've already covered this, but I want to make sure my memory is working today. There is irony here because to build up should be to the benefit of the brothers in the the week, excuse me, to the benefit of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul uses Oikodomio in 8 1 to describe the beneficial work of Christian love, that is to build up. Here, the weaker one is built up to sin. This irony is biting and should be convicting. We want to build one another up in the faith, in love, in our trust in God's promises, which was a lovely song. That was sung and not build people up to what would destroy them. Dr. Thistle Thistleton points out, Paul now exclaims after going along with all the supposedly chaired assumption, so is this what the process of building and edifying the insecure finally achieves? Does it not make their insecurity worse? says Thistleton, their self-awareness, more confused does it not in practice destroy the brother or sister the fellow family member for those whose benefit christ yielded his life and to of these people therefore belong we must proceed always concerned about valid spiritual godly benefit to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing every single one is important to Him, He put them in His family. So they re- notice the word recline too. It's not totally certain why this would be here. Normally you'd say seat, but I think as Paul writes, he uses the word recline. It's reminding us of the Gospels, in my opinion reclining at the table you're supposed to be reclining at the table with the Lord you're reclining with the demons we get to that chapter 10 and it seems odd but yet it really isn't recent history has shown us that Christian institutions are very prone to take on the practices of the pagans and then encourage people that this is good and beneficial and so we've got to be careful that we don't allow that to happen. Let's go to verse 11. <clears throat> Again, still from the LEB. For the one who is weak, the brother for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Now this, and this doesn't shock the readers in Corinth when Paul wrote it to them. Uh, it shows how hard-hearted they really are. They should be shocked. They should be stunned. They should be convicted to the core. The word destroyed, apolumi is a very serious word. Total, final destruction. To be lost. To have your faith destroyed. Your hope dashed and by saying the weak one and the brother for whom Christ died. He emphasizes again the importance and significance of every single member of the body of Christ. That is, those who have believed the gospel, who are born of God, who are placed in the body, built on the rock, part of the kingdom, God's building, foundation already laid, persons being added through the gospel, everyone significant, important, necessary and should be shown love and consideration. That is the point. And by going to the idol temple, proving how much knowledge you have, proving how strong you are, don't bother me any. I'll eat with whoever I want, including the pagans at their place. So I've called this, uh, this is my statement, to have a cavalier attitude which shows no concern for the weak is fully unacceptable. Apollumi is the very first word in the Greek sentence. See, in Greek, word order can be used for emphasis. They didn't have the ability to highlight something and choose bold when you're writing on papyri. Okay, so how do you emphasize something? Well, because of the nature of the Greek language, word order isn't as significant as it is in English. So, apolumi is the first word. So, you're reading destroyed. Destroyed. The weak, destroyed. The noun form of apollumi uh, is apol apoleo destruction excuse me, apoleo destruction used 18 times in the New Testament and it means eternal ruin not merely having a serious psychological problem of guilt dear ones, another thing we must be concerned about is that in modernity we tend to think of psychological issues as the real Key. It makes me feel bad. It makes me concerned. But this is stronger than that. This is eternal destruction. That this right, that the strong claim can lead to ruin and destruction, eternal ruin. See Ampon Rosner comment on the word order and its effect. The sentence structure of verse 11. In Greek, is arranged to stress the first and last words, they say. First word is the verb is destroyed, the last word is the verb died. This way, the potential effect of the Corinthian approach is contrasted with that of Christ. This is why, why I included this quote Christ died to save these brothers, but they are promoting their destruction all for the sake of their so-called knowledge. Is it worth the destruction of my brothers and sisters for whom Christ died so that I stand out as somebody strong and important? And if there's any conviction or sensitivity or concern left in the heart of those elitists, will be smitten to the heart to no, know it is absolutely not worth it. So they're going face-to-face with their own problem. I have a statement I put in my notes. The elitists claim to be gifted with knowledge. Whatever special knowledge from the Spirit they may have, they lack love and care for the body of Christ. Paul will discuss gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12, where he emphasizes the necessity of each member of the body and the various gifts each one has. This is followed in chapter 13 by Paul's articulate discourse on love. Whatever leads to a triumphal, self-promoting attitude most definitely is not a special gift of the Spirit. It's pretty amazing sometimes what you see. And this is so applicable to Christianity as we see it today. The ones that get the biggest followings on TV, the ones with the biggest crowds, with the most excitement, oftentimes promote themselves as having some special gift or power or knowledge or something us ordinary peons could never hope to have. But maybe if we give them money or go to their meeting or or buy their books, we can get by trickle-down a little bit of their giftedness. Totally... Wrong in regard to what the body of Christ is about. We all are attached to the head. We all need one another. And somebody claiming to be the grand power of God may be thinking they're giving some hope to some ordinary Christian, but all they're doing is giving false hope and ultimately fear of hopelessness and failure because we can't live up to all their grandiose claims and practices because we're just ordinary Christians but I've often said that being an ordinary Christian is an extraordinary thing because God put us into his family adopted into the family of God verse 12 1 Corinthians 8:12 thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you stand against Christ. So Paul lays out his indictment right there in bold, strong words to the knowledgeable elite who claim they know something, the others don't, and they have rights the others don't, and they have privileges the others could only hope to have. And then, of course, they're going to see Paul as deficient as well. And we'll be talking about that when we're in chapter 9. Sitting against your brothers, it's the ESV, wounding their conscience. The word wounding is a strong word, tupto, tupto, I should say. And it means inflicting a blow like a punch in the face. Striking. You strike their conscience, you punch them. It's very hurtful, harmful. And then in this verse, looking at word order, the word for sin is found at the beginning and end of this verse, framing the rebuke. Sin, sinning. And it's a very strong rebuke. We know from chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the body of Christ corporately is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we must, it must be seen as such. Let me read those verses to you. I preached on it some months ago. 1 Corinthians three, sixteen and 7, 17. By the way, you is plural in this, these verses in the Greek. Plural. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple and so the body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit the only way to be part is to be born of the Spirit be part of the family of God that's the definition of the church I'm going to argue for continually and our application will show how valid I believe it is and This sadly has departed from Christendom. The church now is a massive institution with members, millions and millions, yes, even billions of people go to church who are not part of the family of God, not born of God, not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and so forth, but they're part of christian religion in the broadest sense of the term so many times these teachings that we're getting from the bible here fall on deaf ears when people think well that's not me i go to church i show up i've been fourth generation part of this uh, institution been around a long long time so if i'm not christian i guess nobody is because they don't understand Christendom is not Christianity. Christianity is grounded in the finished work of Christ, personal faith in Christ, forgiveness, redemption, and atonement, being grafted in, being part of the family of God, and being filled with the Spirit. It's not, well, my great-grandfather gave a lot of money for it. We can have this building. So therefore, you better listen to me. That's what it's degenerated into. That's why we've got Eastern religion coming into uh, educational institutions. That's why we have so much confusion, so much harm. But if we get back to understanding the body of Christ is the Lord Jesus Christ's own precious sons and daughters he died for, he brought to himself he protects, he loves, he cares for, we start thinking about each other differently. We start praying for the hurting, weeping with the weep, rejoicing with the rejoicing, and caring, and not seeing people as possible folks who could enhance our status. So this is a clear statement about the corporate solidarity of believers. Dr. Thistle says this, through participation in the death of Christ crucified, the believer becomes identified with Christ. Christ identifies himself with those he has consecrated. One two enriched. One five he's thinking of First uh, Corinthians one and purchased as his own. Six twenty who are shrines of the Spirit. Six nineteen the previous verse eight eleven has shown. That what is at stake is the self assertive stance of the strong, bringing the weak for whom Christ died face to face with destruction. How horribly, regrettably, terribly ironic. Rather than hope, encouragement, comfort, care, and love. They're brought face-to-face with Apollumi destruction. May God help us. May God help us. Verse 13, as we finish chapter (coughs) 8. Therefore, verse 13, I'm reading from the ESV 8.13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, scandalizo. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Never. Never is into the age in the Greek, which is the way the Greek speaks of eternity. Now, this is clearly uh, hyperbole, because we know Paul did eat meat, but he's making a point with his hyperbole. If eating meat, in any sense, was going to cause people to be scandalized to the point of facing destruction, I will never do it. Now, we'll see later, and as we get to the next chapter, that they were—Paul had already given up a lot of his privileges and rights because of their carnal attitudes, and we'll get into that in the next chapter. But to scandalize uh, the stumbling block, to stumble over, or stumble as to fall— is uh, a serious thing. So, and I have some comments on the slide here. The point is that love for our brothers and sisters in Christ must take priority. It's the Lord's priority. It needs to be our priority. In our love for our brothers and sisters and our care for one another, it may be that we don't become important in the eyes of the religious world. We may not be the great, powerful ones, in christianity as it's seen we may not become famous we may not be anything great but jesus said if you did this to the least of these my brethren you did it to me here's a very difficult but necessary shift in thinking that'll change our lives thinking that what matters is what the Lord knows and what he has to say that we won't find out until eternity. Is it worth serving by God's grace in a way that probably nobody here even knows? It's not going to gain anything for your resume. But would it be worth it if the Lord says, well done, thou faithful servant, enter into the joy of that master? It's a difficult question, because the Lord's commendation, in the end, seems ethereal and a long ways away. And how people react to us now is right there, right now, and it seems to mean so much. And the only thing I could say that would help me is just let this text have its impact, because the Word of God is the only thing that can change this in us and so for every one of us dear saints the well being of the Lord's flock is the key thing it's why we're here why we serve the well being of the Lord's flock the little ones who believe in me Jesus said Paul will give up what is valid for him out of love for the family of God now I'm going to make a point here i've seen this happen gordon fee makes a point and i literally it's a very easy thing to happen and he's probably seen it. it's probably why he makes a point i'll explain what that's going to be and then i'll read his statement in some cases this is a valid truth that we're reading from scripture some will take that and create the ty- tyranny of the weak and here's what i mean by that if there's anything anybody doesn't like and is offended by that rules everybody else. And eventually, you have, uh, how would you say it, just total stalemate in everything. No, that offends me. No, we can't do that. That offends me. No, you can't do that. That'll offend me. No, I don't like this. No, I don't like that. And it gets down to the point where you can't sing a song because somebody didn't like it. And so let me read feet because I was in a group and I've seen that happen before. Fee makes an important point, and I'm going to quote him, Fee. What would seem to be an illegitimate use of the principle, even in the broader terms of verse 13, is for those who feel offended to try to force all others to conform to their own idiosyncrasies of behavior. Paul makes it quite clear in Romans 14 that on matters of indifference, people within any given community, says Fee, should learn to live together in harmony with no group demanding their own behavior of the others. Continuing Fee, the real concern of the passage needs a regular hearing in the church. Personal behavior is dictated not by knowledge, freedom, or law, but by love for those within the community of faith. Everything one does that affects relationships within the body of Christ should have, have care for brothers and sisters as the primary motivation. So I agree with thee. You want to know about disputable matters? Go to Romans 14. We'll find out when we get to chapter 10, eating at the pagan idol temple with the pagans in the name of Christ is communing with demons. That's a no, okay? That's not the weak dictating everything. So I thought, Feast point was important I have one more statement I have put in my notes ultimately in chapter 8 and then in chapter 10 most decisively Paul concludes that eating in the idol temple was not a legitimate right of the elite strong with their special knowledge but was a sin It was a stumbling block that always harmed the church even more seriously, it was dining with demons. The issue of scandalizing members of the body of Christ is not about psychological irritation. We all, at some point, irritate each other. I'm a good irritator. Um, but, not to try to be better at that, but not doing that but showing callous disregard for dear saints who have been added to the church by the lord himself that's what we need to know did the lord add someone to the church is this my brother or sister and does that matter and it does it matters and we'll show that it matters to the lord two points of application number one sin against brothers and sisters in christ You sin against Christ. Paul said that. You sin against Christ. Secondly, to affirm the corporate solidarity of the church, we must have a biblical understanding of the church. That uh, I'm going to be emphasizing strongly as we go along. It almost seems shocking that 2,000 years later, one of the hardest things we can do is define the church. You would think that would be obvious, but it's not. But let's see some passages that will help us. Now, we're going to go to Acts 9, 1 and 2, and we're going to examine Paul's conversion. He was Saul at that point. And to set the stage for this, as you look at this slide, I'll read the background in Acts seven fifty eight and Acts 8, 1. Stephen had given a very strong, powerful, Old Testament-grounded, factually-grounded gospel message. And he was martyred for it. And Stephen preached Christ in a most powerful way. Saul of Tarsus was there and heard the whole thing. Get that background. Disciple of Gamaliel, trained, understood the scriptures. Stephen laid it out. Saul sat there and heard the whole thing. Acts seven fifty eight. and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. That's Stephen. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 8.1 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Now, as we look at this, excuse me, I did not want to flip the slide. We're going to see on 9, 1 through 2. So let's see, it's flipped... As we go forward in 9, 1 and 2, we'll see Saul kept getting more angry. Let's read it. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this Saul, who heard Stephen preach the gospel, who heard a brilliant speech grounded in the Old Testament and in recent facts that they knew had happened, the tomb was empty, Jesus was raised, he ascended to heaven. This Stephen, who was killed, and he was giving hearty, hearty approval to, just got more angry And he was full of this vitriol as he wanted to find people who would believe in Christ, dragged him to Jerusalem to be punished for the temerity of believing the truth. How many of you know that when the truth confronts the sinner, the first reaction is usually anger? That's a self-defense type of thing. How dare you tell me I'm wrong? If you tell me I'm wrong, I think you deserve a good punch in the nose. But there was someone a lot more powerful than Saul waiting for him on his journey. I think you read ahead on this one. Let's go to verses 3 and 4. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus... And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Now, I have a title here that would bring one of the implications of Jesus' statement from heaven that Jesus himself was in solidarity with his own people his own children sons and daughters of the king they're his and whatever attack was waged against them was waged waged against Christ himself so he says to Saul why are you persecuting me? And in this encounter, we know his conversion, and we'll read a couple more verses here, but uh, the astute reader of Luke Acts will see an allusion here to the Old Testament. This is an epiphany. This is a manifestation of God the Son that's visible as light, and audible as a voice speaking intelligent words that's important for us to realize people are looking for gaining an altered state of consciousness and having a blank mind and having some sort of a transcendent experience that can't be expressed in words that's not biblical the revelation that god gave of glory expressed in words from a real person our Lord Jesus, the Ascended One, the Resurrected One, seated in heaven. The light in the voice remind us of the theophany. Theophany would be a manifestation of God in a way that a human is confronted by it. Theophany is Moses encountered at the burning bush and on Sinai in Exodus 3 and Exodus 19. Moses saw the bur- bush. There was light and also Audible, intelligible words from the great I am. And so we have here a theophany. The repetition of his name, Saul, Saul, reminds us of the burning bush where Yahweh says, Moses, 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 Moses. He said, here I am. Falling to the ground is due to being overwhelmed by the divine manifestation. As you know, Luke acts a a two-volume work, the same author. Let me cite Luke 10, 16. I'll cite it for you. Jesus said, The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. By persecuting Jesus, Christians, Paul. Saul, later Paul, was persecuting Christ. How much more should we treat with love, kindness our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Whatever the case. Sometimes it means correction, but it always means love. Let's go on with this, verses 5 and 6. And he said, who are you lord and he said i am jesus whom you are persecuting but get up and enter the city it will be told to you what what you must do so here jesus affirms his solidarity with the church paul proved of the martyrdom of stephen And now he's wanting to persecute Christians and thus persecute Jesus Christ himself. Now, this has been misused, by the way. People take the idea of the corporate solidarity and then take Christendom and the institutional church and mistake that for the church and say, if you criticize a heretic, you're attacking Christ. If you criticize somebody who published anything under the banner of Christian from some bookhouse, and you say, no, this is false teaching and needs to be corrected, they say, you can't do that. You're mistreating your fellow brother and sister. But that's assuming that the institutional church is the same thing as what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, or 1 Corinthians 3, or 1 Corinthians 6. Are we indeed talking about the same thing? If somebody writes a book saying, go into an altered state of consciousness, get your mystical guidance, uh, achieve nothingness in your brain, and suddenly the Spirit of God will come and transform you, they're teaching something as bad as eating with the pagans in the temples in Corinth. That's not the church. But if it is the church, we have the access to helping one another get things right. Saul now finds that he's been intercepted on his evil mission, this is my statement, by Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord, stopped in his tracks like Moses at the burning bush. Dr. Schnabel says Jesus directs Saul to go into Damascus and wait for instructions he'll be shown what he must do. Now, Paul found that Ananias is who the Lord used to bring this about, but it was the Lord that brought it about. Let's get to Acts 26. You can turn here. We we'll use the rest of our time in Acts 26. We'll probably start with 14. I just have on the slide 16, 17, and 18. This is a future recollection that Paul gives of his conversion citing what Jesus said to him and we have more details here so it'll help us understand why this is such an important issue so he's in this case he's before Agrippa been on trial there's a big riot that happened in Jerusalem in Acts 21 he's going to civil authorities appealing his way to Rome to stand up for the gospel of Rome But now he's before Agrippa. And so he's telling his testimony. Let's start with verse 14. As he tells his story. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats, which is like a cattle prod. That's what Jesus told him and verse 15 and i said who are you lord And the lord said i am jesus whom you are persecuting now to our slide here verse 16 but get up and stand on your feet for this purpose i appear to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen but also the things which i will appear to you rescuing you from the jewish people from the Gentiles, for whom I am sending you. Notice, he saw tangible manifesta- a tangible manifestation of the Lord himself. The things you have seen. The resurrected Christ was seen by Paul. This will become important. It will come up in chapter 9 of First Corinthians. He's an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. And which will appear to you. There were more than one such appearance. And we've pointed that out before. And so he saw, he heard, he's a witness. He has information about what's true. He's converted, no longer an enemy of Christ. He knows that what Stephen was preaching that he initially rejected is cold, sober truth, and he embraces that. And so here is our um, conversion story of Paul, and the fact that he was attacking Christians when he when he attacked Christians he attacked Christ. Last slide, and that's twenty eight twenty. Excuse me, twenty six eighteen. So, gee, this is quoting Jesus. You probably have red letters here if it, you have one of those Bibles. Red letters. Paul's telling Agrippa what Jesus said to Paul. This is the calling that Paul received from the Lord himself. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me jesus told that to paul as part of his commission let me tell you dear ones there's a lot of theology right there that's a lot of theology it's very very important some of this shows up in colossians that paul wrote in ephesians which he wrote there's allusions to the old testament but notice that conversion is to have your eyes open, that so opened by God's grace through the gospel that you turn from darkness to light. You know, people in darkness don't believe they are. People who are in this kind of bondage, many don't believe they are at all. They call bondage to darkness liberation and freedom. And, uh, They're able to say, I don't need all this Christian stuff. I don't need guilt. I am who I am. I choose my own destiny. And nobody can tell me it's wrong. But you know, we have to tell the truth. All of us, before we knew the Lord Jesus, were in darkness. Jesus Christ... God, the Son, second person of the Trinity, existed with God and has God from all eternity. He was the one through whom creation happened. And when he created the day and the night and the light, he said in John, I am the light of the world. He who comes to me no longer remains in darkness. This is who we're talking about. We're not talking about joining a religion, being religious, or making a a pledge to do better. We're talking about being removed from spiritual darkness and hopelessness and being transferred by a powerful work of God into light, as happened for Saul of Tarsus. He was full of darkness, breathing out hatred, threats, and slaughter. And whether we believe there's a Satan or not, every one of us, before we knew Christ, or if you don't know him now, there is a Satan, and you're in his domain. And what's necessary is forgiveness of sins. Ephesus means release. Sin is like bondage. It's chains. It holds us in its grip. And the wages of sin is death. And so this one, God the son, the virgin born sinless one who died for sins once for all was raised from the dead as he predicted paid for all sins with his shed blood for those who believe to find forgiveness and he bodily ascended to heaven and he's coming again to bring freedom and relief to those who know him and judgment to those who do not. But those who Turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. Receive forgiveness of sins. And then it says an inheritance. That gets to the heart of what we're talking about. Maybe today you haven't turned yet to the Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Trust in him. Turn to him. Believe in him. And you, like Saul of Tarsus, will no, no longer be in the darkness, but come to the light. And have release from sins. Inheritance. Greek word kleros. Kleros. It means lot. You have a lot. You have a portion. It's part of the inheritance of the church. In eternity. A place. A part. When Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy the Holy Spirit, Peter said, you have no lot. You're not part of this. You're not even... You're not even a portion of it. You're, you're somebody else. May your money perish with you. But this means having a place or an inheritance. Colossians 1 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance. There's Kleiros, lot of the saints in light. All true Christians. Not meaning they're more, they give more money or they do more good works or whatever. They know the Lord. They've been converted, have a lot, have an inheritance. Therefore, we have our corporate solidarity. The church consists of those who, through the gospel, are converted. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus. And that very moment you trust in him alone, you have a lot, an inheritance with the saints in light. Those who, through the gospel, are converted, and all of these things... Jesus spoke to Paul are true about each member. Wow, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter how bad you were. It doesn't matter how hopeless it was. It doesn't matter what the world has thought about you, whether it's great or bad. It only matters that you come to know the Lord and be part of the family of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. Now, Paul continues, so let me read 19 and 20 as we conclude this. Acts twenty six nineteen and 20. So King Agrippa, I did not, Paul said, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Verse 20, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and throughout the whole region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, synonymous parallelism, Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Simon the sorcerer found out trying to buy the Holy Spirit is not a deed appropriate to repentance. He just wanted to add it to his magic trick. But believers want to be different. We don't, because of what God's done, we don't want to be like the world. We're asking God to give us power to continue to be different. Repent and turn to God. That's what Paul said to Agrippa. He didn't say, hey, Agrippa, listen to me. I got a better way you can run your kingdom. It'll work out better if you get more votes. No. He said that we should repent and turn to Christ. Today, I pray that that's true. If it isn't, that today would be the day of salvation. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we're allowed to look into these things that are revealed in your word. And I pray that you'd help us from our hearts to have this love and care for each other that we read about in the pages of Scripture. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus has put us part of his family, that we can be part of the family of God, thank you what we can learn, and give us wisdom as we go forth with the message of the gospel, and help us to treat each other with love and kindness. Thank you, dear Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.